Well, good morning, Horizon. It's good to see you. Glad you chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, We have the privilege of hearing from a friend of mine, Tim Downs. Tim is a nationally known speaker. He and his wife, Joy, are authors of two books on conflict resolution, and he is a murder mystery writer, having written nine books on murder mysteries. So it ought to prove to be an interesting uh, conversation with Tim. Tim, won't you come up? Give him a hearty uh, horizon welcome. Thank you. Good morning. It's a little bit awkward to be writing books on both marriage and murder. Makes it look like I can't make up my mind. And it actually makes my wife nervous sometimes. In fact, Joy actually said to me once, hey, if anything ever happens to me, everyone will know. (laughs) I said, honey, if anything ever happens to you, no one will know. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Two years ago, I met a 37-year-old Chinese man named Vin Chung. Vin was looking for someone to tell his family's fascinating story. I told Vin I'm not a memoirist. I told him I divide my writing time between marriage and murder. But then Vin told me his family story, and I said, sign me up. And the result is this book, Where the Wind Leads, which is scheduled for release just nine days from now. You'll see it in bookstores just after Easter. Thank you very much. Vin's ancestry is Chinese. His family was growing up in South Vietnam. In fact, Vin was born just eight months after South Vietnam fell to the communists in April of 1975. The Chung family was quite a clan. It was led by the matriarch of the family, Grandmother Chung. She was one fascinating woman. Grandmother Chung married in the 30s, but because of all the turmoil during the Second World War when South Vietnam was conquered by the Japanese, the family business had literally been burned to the ground so many times that Grandfather Chung fell into a deep depression, withered away, and died. And he left Grandmother Chung, his wife, a widow with five children, two sons, three daughters, no means of support. The Grandmother Chung was one tough lady, so what she began to do is to go out in the streets and just scrape together handfuls of rice. Because they lived in the Mekong Delta, and the Mekong Delta is the rice bowl of all of Southeast Asia. She knew that everybody needs rice in Southeast Asia, so she would scrape together handfuls of rice, She would hand mill it with a mortar and pestle, and then she'd use half to feed her family, sell the other half for money to buy more rice. And she duplicated this effort over and over until two decades later, she had built herself a rice milling empire worth tens of millions of dollars. They shipped all over the Mekong Delta and as far north as Saigon. She was a tough woman. She was six feet tall at a time when the average Asian woman was five feet tall. So she towered over the competition. And she had this delicate habit of chewing beetle leaf. It's a concoction of an areca nut chopped up fine, put in a beetle leaf, along with a pink calcium hydroxide powder and spices like cinnamon and cardamom for flavoring. You roll it up and it's like a chew. Tuck it in your lip, gives you about the same kick as nicotine does. But that pink powder has the side effect of turning your teeth blood red. And when you chew and spit, it looks like a jet of blood. So 
So here's this six-foot-tall Asian woman, broad-shouldered with long arms and thick hands, and she could handle a machete like a Viet Cong regular. And she would walk down that sidewalk spitting blood and just staring people down. And when people would see her, they would step off the sidewalk. In fact, Vin's little brother remembers Grandmother Chung and says, every time that woman looked at me, I wet my pants. She was the boss of that clan. She had two sons. One was named Tan. Tan would become Vin's father. The two sons were responsible for running the actual business. But Grandmother Chung made it clear whose business it was. She was the absolute boss, and Asian families traditionally are hierarchical, which means she would always be the boss forever. And whenever there was a decision made by one of her boys that she didn't like, she would discipline them. And her method of disciplining was caning. So the boys would kneel down in front of her, and she'd take a piece of bamboo rod, and she would beat them until she raised a welt and sometimes drew blood. Their job was to take it. And she did this into their 40s because it's a traditional Asian family. Well, Tan Chung was six foot three, handsome, wealthy. In 1966, Grandmother Chung decided it was time for her son to marry. That's the kind of boss she was. Too much time messing around. She wanted some grandkids, so she decided her son was going to get married, and they found her a wife. And in 1966, Tan Chung married a woman named Hua from a nearby town. Hua is a Chaocho word that means peace. It's a beautiful name. She was a beautiful woman. She was known as the second most beautiful woman in Baklu. Well, the problem is Tan Sheng was a kind of a playboy, and I don't make that word up. If you ask him to this day, what were you like in those days? He would tell you, I was a playboy. I wasn't a nice man at all. Because he had money, he had power, he had prestige, he had looks. So when he took a wife, he took himself a mistress. Because polygamy was acceptable in Vietnam in those days, and a mistress was looked at as a kind of luxury item, sort of like a BMW. If you could afford one, you got yourself one. So every time Tan Chung would have a child by his wife, he would have a child by his mistress. By the time he had five children by his wife, he had four children by his mistress. It was culturally acceptable. That didn't make it good, and that didn't make it right. And his infidelity hurt his wife so deeply that twice... She actually tried to take her own life. Well, the interesting thing is the Vietnam War came along. You might think that would have been hard on the family business. Actually, business got better. Now you had all those government contracts. More rice was needed. Now the Chung family empire was really growing because they're shipping rice all over the Mekong Delta, as far north as Saigon. They're shipping to the army as well. It became clear when the Vietnam War was coming to an end that South Vietnam was going to lose. See, there was this politician in America. His name was Richard Nixon. You probably haven't heard of him. But he campaigned on the promise that he would get our boys out of Vietnam. He recommended a, a program, a policy he called Vietnamization. What it meant is let the Asians fight their own war, if it ever was their war. Let's get our boys out of there, but let's leave all the equipment and we'll continue to send equipment, arms and money. That way they can fight their own war. Problem is, it didn't quite work that way. We did pull our boys out. But Americans were very tired of the Vietnam War. And so when our boys came home, we wanted nothing more to do with some remote Asian war. So the money immediately dried up. Now the South Vietnamese had all this equipment, but no way to repair it 
or rearm themselves. One historian said they were fighting a rich man's war on a pauper's budget. And so it became clear to the South Vietnamese when the Americans pulled out that they were doomed. It was only a matter of time before the North Vietnamese army would overrun them and they would lose. The Chungs didn't care. Because, you see, when Tan Chung was born, there was still an emperor sitting on the throne in Vietnam. Then along came World War II, and now Vietnam was a vassal state. They were ruled by the Empire of Japan. Then after the Japanese were driven out at the end of the Second World War, they lived under French colonial rule. And then in 1954, when they split Vietnam north and south, they lived in South Vietnam under a loose-knit democracy. Now the communists are going to take over? So what? Big deal. Just another form of government. Only it turned out to be quite a big deal. Because when the communists did take over in April of 1975, and when they rolled into the Mekong Delta, they took everything that the Chung family had. They took the rice mills. They took the house. That became a civic building. Took the cars, took the motorcycles, took every bit of cash that they could get a hold of. And they sent the Chung family, which by this time was mom and dad and, and six children, to live on a farm, a little 10-acre farm. How they lived would be up to them. And for the next four years, the Chung family eked out an existence from the dirt of a 10-acre farm, growing everything they could, eating whatever they could find. Four years they spent that way. And then Tan Chung and his wife Hua realized there was no future in Vietnam for their children. Vin Chung, who wanted to write his family story, was actually born on that farm. So were his twin brothers, eight kids now. So they decided in 1979 that they would leave the country, that they would join the ranks of the legendary boat people. Remember them? In 1979, if you were Chinese, it was easy to get out of the country because in 1979, the Vietnamese government was trying to get rid, of the ra get, get rid of the last vestiges of capitalism. And if you wanted to get rid of capitalism, you got rid of the Chinese because they were the successful business people. And in 1979, Vietnam was having border conflicts with China to the north. And if you're going to have border conflicts with China, you don't want Chinese living behind enemy lines. You don't want a fifth column operating in your own country. So the rule in 79 was, if you're Chinese, go. Go with our blessing. Get out. They just made one little stipulation. The stipulation was, when you left Vietnam, you signed over all your property to the Vietnamese government. And you gave all your money. Which means leaving Vietnam was a one-way trip. Nevertheless, the Chungs realized there was no future for their family. And they decided better to leave everything behind to have a chance for success someplace else. And so, in 1979, what the Chung family did was they found an old beat-up fishing trawler, and they patched it up, and they gathered friends, and 290 people loaded into that boat and sailed off from Kamau in the Mekong Delta, down the river, out into the South China Sea, headed for... They didn't actually know where. See, it didn't matter because... All the surrounding nations by 1979 had received so many refugees that they couldn't take anymore. They all had a pushback policy. If you land on our shore, we push you back out to sea. Still, the Chungs decided better to leave. In fact, the BBC and the Voice of America kept, kept broadcasting to refugees to say to them, you need to think twice about becoming boat people because of the dangers at sea 
By 79, people had taken every seaworthy boat there was. These were floating death traps, tiny little unreliable engines. And there were no people left in Vietnam that had any seafaring skills. They'd left years ago. Plus, there was the danger of Thai pirates. If you take a look at the map here, you'll notice the Mekong Delta. And just to the west, a little to the north, that's Cambodia. Remember the killing fields of Cambodia? Just to the west of that, that's Thailand. And Thailand, you'll notice, is shaped like the letter C. It surrounds the Gulf of Thailand. And with that much coastland, you can imagine, Thailand has always been a big fishing industry. But fishing is hard work and it doesn't pay well. So when refugees began to flee from South Vietnam in April of 1975, Thai pirates began to grow. See, the fishermen began to realize it was a lot easier and a lot more profitable to rob the refugees fleeing Vietnam than to fish. What they understood is these refugees, they were fleeing with money in the form of gold and jewels. See, nobody wanted to leave with South Vietnamese currency. The first thing that the new Vietnamese government did is devalue the old currency. If you want to make sure that the formerly rich remain formerly rich, you devalue their currency and introduce a new one. So all the money and currency that the rich had was worth nothing anymore. So you don't leave with currency. You convert it into gold and diamonds. You take that with you. Smuggle everything you can on board. Thai pirates recognized they were loaded. These boats were like floating bank vaults and they weren't armed. There were no weapons to defend themselves. And so the Gulf of Thailand and South China Sea became a kind of killing field. The Thai pirates turned into a kind of floating mafia. They actually worked in teams in wolf packs and they would attack refugee boats. And since there was no law at sea, it became ugly and brutal. They would typically assault the women, sometimes decapitate some of the men. Last thing that they would do after they stole all the money is ram the refugee boat until it cracked in half and everybody drowned. And that's because in nations like Thailand, it was a capital offense to be a pirate. So the last thing you wanted was witnesses, right? And to this day, nobody knows how many boat people actually died at sea. It was estimated at the time that the death rate for a boat person was 50%. That means when you left, like the Chung family, your chances of survival, just the voyage, one out of two. And in the Chung family, a family of 10 and extended family, the oldest member of the family was a grandfather in his 70s, and they had 18-month-old twin boys. Now, moms, can you imagine doing that? Fleeing on a rickety boat with 18-month-old twin boys, knowing your chances of survival are one out of two. Nevertheless, the Chung family thought better to risk death at sea than to live the way they were living in Vietnam under communist rule. And so in 1979, they made that voyage. And yes, they were attacked by pirates, but survived and arrived on the beaches of Malaysia. Now, the boat people had become very well known by this time. So the TV show 60 Minutes sent a young correspondent to the eastern shore of Malaysia to do an episode about the boat people. This young correspondent was named Ed Bradley. Anybody remember him? Passed away in 2006, actually. This is the very first episode that Ed Bradley ever filmed for 60 Minutes. Take a look at this. At first, it's hard to make out. A speck on the horizon. You take a closer look. A boat. A flag. An arm waving. 
a crowd gathers along the beach. This is the east coast of Malaysia, final destination for thousands of refugees fleeing Vietnam. Many don't make it this far. They're attacked by pirates, drowned, or starved to death. These have made it. But will the Malaysian police turn them away? Or will they be stoned by local villagers? The crowd waits to see how many will survive this time. Only a few fishermen helped the boat people ashore. We joined in. As we could tell, no one drowned coming ashore. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And just for that, some were grateful. Thank you, no, no, no. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Very, very much, thank you, very much. Now, that is not the Chung family. In fact, that footage was shot six months before the Chung family fled from the Mekong Delta. But did you notice the little date in the lower right corner, June 24th of 1979? That was the air date of that episode of 60 Minutes. And on that day, the Chung family was on that beach, in that spot. And I've showed this footage to Mr. and Mrs. Chung, and they said that's exactly what it looked like for us. So they made it safely. The problem is, by this time, there were 200,000 refugees in refugee camps all over Southeast Asia, and nobody knew what to do with any of them. What do you do with new arrivals on the beach? Well, the Malaysian army imprisoned them. And for the next two weeks, they were force-marched down the beach. They'd march for hours every day in this blistering hot sand. Remember, we're only a couple of hundred miles north of the equator here, and this is June. Force-marched for hours every day, every evening, they stopped in the same spot. looked exactly like the place they left that morning. Poor Mrs. Chung, in the busyness and distraction of leaving everything back in Vietnam, failed to recognize the fact that she was pregnant. And after the forced marching up and down the beach, she miscarried, lost a set of twins, hemorrhaged, and almost died from a loss of blood. After two weeks of imprisonment, forced marching up and down the beach, the Malaysian army told them, Good news! Today we're taking you to a refugee camp. It's only two or three hours offshore on an island, so you need nothing. We're going to load you into four smaller boats. They broke the group of 290 into four rickety little fishing boats. The engines didn't even work. That's no problem. They were going to tow them. Take nothing with you. No food, no water. Everything you need will be at the refugee camp. And they told them, 
take no money. If you have anything of value left on you, you surrender to us now. Because if we discover you've held anything back, we will leave you on the beach to die. So those refugees dug down deep. And any gold or jewels they had left, they pulled out and they turned over to the Malaysians. And then they loaded them into those four fishing boats. Mr. and Mrs. Chung and their eight children were put in a boat about 35 feet long with 93 people on board. A Malaysian patrol boat backed up to them, tied a rope to the bow of each of those fishing boats, and towed them out to sea. But towed them not for two or three hours, but for 20 hours, straight out into the middle of the South China Sea, where just before dawn they cut the ropes and said, you're on your own. And they headed back for shore. They left them to die. Nobody knows how many people that happened to, but you know, the ocean's a good place to get rid of unwanted people. Because when those rickety boats go down, there are no survivors and there are no bodies. But the Chung family didn't know when they were set adrift that something else was going on on the other side of the world that was about to affect them. In the faraway exotic place called Los Angeles, there was a fledgling young hunger relief organization called World Vision. Maybe you've heard of them. World Vision wasn't very old at the time. had its second president. He was a man named Stan Mooneyham. Dr. Stanley Mooneyham was scheduled to speak at a church on a Sunday night in December of 1977. The pastor was a man you may have heard of named Evie Hill. South Central Los Angeles. Sunday night, Stan's about to speak. Evie Hill and Stan are meeting in the pastor's study. Evie Hill takes a copy of that day's L.A. Times and tosses it across the desk to Stan and says, What are you going to do about that? And on the front page, there is an article about the boat people. And it's carrying this photograph. I'll bet you've never saw that photograph before, but I'll bet you've seen one taken by the same photographer. Did you ever see that famous photograph of the South Vietnamese officer executing the Viet Cong? Won the Pulitzer Prize? Same photographer. Stan Mooneyham said, what am I going to do about this? This is, this is not my job. This is not what World Vision does. We're a land-based organization. In fact, Stan had spent the last year of his life working in Africa. He admitted later he had never even heard of the boat people at the time. And yet, he couldn't get that photograph out of his mind. It haunted him. And he felt like God wanted him to do something about this, though he had no clue what to do. So what Stan finally decided to do is buy himself one of these. It's a 1,400-ton freighter that had been used for hauling copra, coconut meat, from the Philippines to Malaysia. He re-outfitted it, converted it, loaded it with food and water, and decided what he would do is sail around the South China Sea, bringing hunger relief to boat people. He couldn't rescue them. He wasn't allowed. It was illegal at the time. If a captain of a ship rescued a refugee, he lost his license. Your crew could actually be imprisoned. It's because the surrounding nations had received so many refugees already, they were suffering from what one scholar called compassion fatigue. Tired of being nice. Right. So what Stan decided to do is outfit himself a, a, a freighter and he docked it on the southern tip of Malaysia. See that little black triangle? Singapore. Singapore is a nation state that's about the size of Lexington, Kentucky, an entire nation. And what he did is set sail in his boat that he christened Sea Sweep. And his idea was, I will sail up the coast of Malaysia and I will intercept Boat people coming ashore. Only somehow he made it all the way up the shore of Malaysia to the border of Thailand and never found a single refugee boat. So instead what he decided to do was 
head due east. He cut across an area that was known as Refugee Alley. Because if you think about it, he's cutting off the angle, right? All those boats leaving from the tip of the Mekong Delta. He could cut off the angle and have a much better chance of running across a refugee boat. Now, what had been happening to the Chung family? Well, for five days, they had been adrift. June of 1979. Remember that huge typhoon that hit the Philippines a year ago? Remember the devastation? Worst typhoon in recorded history. You know when the second worst typhoon in recorded history took place? 1979. And that's typhoon season. Five days they've been adrift. They're almost dead. No food, no water. It's no water that kills you. There's a pregnant woman on board. Can you imagine what that was like for her? The grandfather in the family announced all of a sudden he was heading to the kitchen for a glass of cold water. They had to hold him down to keep him from climbing out of the boat. The 18-month-old twin boys began to bite their mom and bang their heads against the, the side of the boat just in frustration. They couldn't understand why their mom wouldn't let them have a drink when the boat is surrounded by water. The mothers began to discuss the possibility of wrapping strips of cloth around their baby's arms and dropping them into the water just to spare them suffering, any more suffering. Five days of this. And so on the fifth day, here's Mr. Chung, Tan Chung, the playboy. Not a nice guy. Not from a religious background at all. In fact, his background was kind of a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Taoism, a little bit of ancestor worship, kind of the strange brew that was common in the Mekong Delta. But suddenly, on that boat, with his family about to perish, Tan Chung was overcome by this thought that he was supposed to pray. And so he got down on his knees in the middle of that boat and prayed, I know there is a creator God. And I don't think you want us to die this way. So send rain. And the minute he finished, he said there was a dark line on the horizon. Clouds started to roll over. Five minutes later, they are bailing because it's raining so hard, they're afraid the boat's going to go down. So Tan Chung gets back on his knees again and prays, Creator God, thanks. But that's enough. So if you don't mind, would you calm the seas and stop the rain? And just like that, the clouds roll on past and the seas are calm again. When that happened, they said everybody in the boat started praying. In fact, the grandmother in the Chung family said later, we prayed to Buddha, we prayed to Jesus, we prayed to our ancestors, we prayed to anybody who'd listen. That'll make a praying person out of you, won't it? And so what happened in early July of 1979 is the sea sweep intercepted the Chung family boat and only that boat. See, those four boats that had been set adrift all at the same time when the Malaysian Navy cut those ropes, well, the wind took them in different directions. By the end of the first day, the Chung family, they were alone. Grandmother Chung, she was in another boat, probably swinging in a machete at somebody. The cousins, they were in other boats. The other three boats disappeared. The wind took them back to Vietnam. They ended up landing almost in the same spot that they left from. It was only Vin's family rescued by the Sea Sweep, and they were taken on board. Sea Sweep took them back to Singapore, where they would spend three months in a refugee camp waiting for rescue. Now, on board Sea Sweep that day, there was a film crew from the BBC that actually shot footage 
as they approached the Chung family's boat. Take a look at this. This is the Chung family's boat. I can't believe this. 35 feet, 93 people. They're packed in there like sardines. Just literally chock a block. Stan Mooneyham. Oh, man. Here's this, that can be more than 35 or 40 feet at the very outside. I just think we could have been 10 miles off in any direction and, and we could have missed that little thing. There was also a photographer on board C-Suite that worked for World Vision. He's now a professor of journalism at Pepperdine in Malibu. He took this shot as they approached the boat. And if you zoom in right there, that's Vin Chung. Three and a half. Three and a half years old. It's amazing, isn't it? This is his family today. They waited in a refugee camp in Singapore for three months for someone to sponsor them. They didn't even know what country they'd go to because when you're a refugee, you have no choice. You go where anyone will take you. They were sponsored by a compassionate Lutheran church in Fort Smith, Arkansas, of all the unlikely places, right on the border with Oklahoma. And that's where the Chung family went. They arrived in the autumn, unable to speak a single word of English and without a dollar in their pockets. But that compassionate church allowed them to have a little 1,100-square-foot house where they could live rent-free for six months. They arrived on a Thursday. On Monday, the Chung children were in a public school. Can you imagine that? Staring at their teacher, smiling just as big as they could, not because they were happy, but because they were terrified, because they had no idea what was going on. They couldn't understand a thing that was said. They worked hard. They sacrificed. Tan Chung, the playboy, he went to work fa fabricating fiberglass for $2.90 an hour, minimum wage. Worked his way up to getting a job on the assembly line at Ream Air Conditioning. And every year that he worked there, he got a 30 cent per hour raise and worked there for 23 years, saving every dime he could, working every shift he could. Never able to understand the American employees that seem to take their paycheck every Friday and blow it over the weekend and start over on Monday. He had better things to do with his money because he had eight kids. And when he first got here, he was making 90 bucks a week. Family of 10, 90 bucks a week. They worked and they sacrificed. And now there are 21 university degrees in the Chung family. There are five doctorates and five master's degrees. Vin is a graduate of Harvard, graduated valedictorian from his high school, made All-State in football at offensive guard, 5'11", 200 pounds. Now, you can, can you imagine how aggressive that kid must have been? He had a choice between going to Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, and Stanford, picked Harvard because they had the lousiest football team, and he thought he could walk on. He did. Made it a linebacker at 200 pounds. 
walked off a week later. He had better things to do. He's a graduate of Harvard Medical School, did a fellowship at Amory. He is now a dermatologist in private practice in Colorado Springs. Now, if you ask the Chung family, how do you account for your amazing success? You know what they would list top on the list? They would list our church. Our church. Because when they got to Fort Smith, they began to attend a Vietnamese-speaking church. And they will tell you that church taught us the English language and also helped us to maintain Vietnamese. Kept us from losing our root. That's the expression they like to use. It also gave us a moral compass. That's what Vin would tell you. Taught us right from wrong. Kept us on the right track. Because Vin likes to say, I walked a path two inches wide and 18 years long. But it was a good path. And they stuck to it. But you may wonder, how does somebody from a Buddhist, Taoist, ancestor worship background end up in a church in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Just because the Creator God answered your prayer, that doesn't mean you start going to church. Well, an interesting thing happened on board the C-suite. Stan Mooneyham, he decided to hold a church service. And he invited all the refugees to attend. Tom didn't want to attend, but he did because he was bored. And because he was afraid that if he said no, he would offend these kind people who had traveled halfway around the globe to rescue his family. So he did. And a Vietnamese translator translated the gospel. And on that voyage back to Singapore, Tan Chung became a Christian. And he passed that on to his family. And this is a dedicated Christian family. Now you may wonder, this is a fascinating story, but why in the heck would Chad invite some writer from North Carolina to come all the way here to Cincinnati to tell you about Chinese people who left Vietnam? Well, here's your application. You ready? Next week's Easter, and you're a refugee, just like me. We're all born into a world whose customs and language we don't understand. As Christians, we've all been plucked from the South China Sea, and you are surrounded in your neighborhood and where you work by fellow refugees. Finn gives a lot of credit to Stan Mooneyham because Stan did what he felt God wanted him to do, though Stan didn't know what he was doing. He'd never been on a ship. He'd never rescued people at sea. And he decided to hold a church service. Is that what you would have done? When you looked down in that cargo hold and you saw 93 people who were not from your ethnic background and didn't speak a word of English, still half-starving with kids running around everywhere, would you have said, those look like people who want to go to church? They couldn't have looked more disinterested. And yet... Stan knew it was the right thing to do, what God wanted him to do. So he invited them, and it changed the course of the Chung family's life. Next week is Easter. And if there's ever a time when people will come to church, Christmas and Easter, but somebody has to invite them, right? And just like that cargo hold, your neighbors and your coworkers, they don't look interested, do they? Because they don't speak the same language and they don't have the same background as you. But you know what? If you'll ask them, they just might come because they're bored and because they don't want to offend you. But that service next week, that could be the thing that changes their lives. So that's my challenge to you. That's what Stan Mooneyham would say to you. That's what Vin would tell you to do. The book's called Where the Wind Leads comes out from Thomas Nelson. You'll find it on the 22nd in bookstores, hopefully everywhere. Let me pray. 
Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thanks for plucking us from the South China Sea. And now help us to send the boat back for other people. Give us the conviction to do what we should do, even when we don't know what we're doing. Thank you, God. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, for the great story and the encouragement to extend an invitation to our neighbors. By the way, another book Tim has written is the best book I've ever read on evangelism. It's called Finding Common Ground. In fact, his books are on a book table um, out in the atrium near the fireplace at the opposite end. You might want to check out his murder mysteries or uh, his books on marriage. And this one, Common Ground, is the best I've ever read on evangelism. You might want to check that out as well. If you came prepared to give... Uh, offering boxes are outside the door to the left. If you've got questions about Horizon, uh, let me encourage you to, to go three doors down on the left. It's the uh, hearth room, and we have some people down there that would love to engage with you on your questions and put a name with a face. So thanks for coming, and we'll see you back next week for Easter.